God loves diversity. I think that is one of the most obvious statements you can make as you look at creation. What can you think of that there's only one variety of? Plants, trees, rocks, stars, animals, fish, snowflakes, fingerprints. Everywhere you look, there is diversity. Look at humans, skin color, facial features, hair characteristics, stature, sexual orientation, gender identification, all diverse. Human culture as well. Languages, religions, clothing styles, songs, dances, gender roles, social organizational structures, laws, even morality in many respects, all diverse. It is as if God built diversity into our system at every level. Even in a group of nearly identical people, for example, typical white Presbyterian congregation, there is a diversity of opinions, perspectives, politics, personality types, and preferences. God's love of diversity does create some interesting conundrums, including these. According to the Genesis account, God created all the people of the world in God's image and likeness, but chose Abraham's family alone to make a covenant with. But, having chosen Abraham and Sarah's descendants, their mandate was to bless all the families of the earth. Another conundrum. Israel alone had the temple, but the prophet Isaiah imagined a future when foreigners would be welcome to worship there. There will be more conundrums to come in a minute. We are a community that gathers around Jesus. We keep telling Jesus' stories to remember his way of life with God and in community, and we will do that again today. What do we see? Although Jesus Jesus was Jewish and focused his ministry on his own people, he too demonstrated that same love of diversity that the Creator God displays. He was not afraid to bring God's healing love to Roman centurions and a Canaanite woman. According to the tradition, Jesus fed the 5,000 on the Jewish side of the lake and then crossed over to feed 4,000 on the Gentile side. He embraced gender diversity too, reaching out to women as well as men. He ministered to the able-bodied and the disabled, the well and the sick, the pure and the impure, radical zealots, and collaborating tax collectors. So, you would think that anyone who looked at creation, and even more so those who honor the Bible, and especially followers of Jesus, would easily embrace diversity in all its forms. But we all know the opposite is true. That is the deepest conundrum. We tend to be tribal. We group ourselves by all kinds of criteria, and we otherize those who do not measure up. That's why we need to keep telling the Jesus stories when we gather. We need to be led by Jesus' example of a life lived full of faith and trust in the God of creation as he interacted with people. So, we come to this familiar story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. This story can be read on several levels, both literal and symbolic. We will only have time today to consider the literal level, but it is rich and has much to teach us about embracing diversity. Think about all the ways in which the unnamed woman was unlike Jesus and the disciples. First, gender. She's a woman. Then, ethnicity. She is Samaritan. This is not a small issue. Racism is not a new idea. Jews and Samaritans believed in the separation of the races, which is an old, old human story. 
She is also religiously diverse, which becomes part of their conversation. As the story develops, we learn that she is also morally suspect, having had numerous failed marriages and is now living in adultery. I guess the only diversity category she doesn't check off the list is disability. But none of these is a barrier to Jesus. He does not let any of them keep him from engaging her. He sees her as a human being made in God's image. He sees her personal struggles not as barriers to God's love, but as reasons for needing God's love. He does not shame her, although he is bluntly honest with her. That is true acceptance, not denial of differences, not pretending there are no issues between them, but accepting the person as a person anyway. The first part of their conversation is about water. That is the common ground. Both of them have come to the well for water. I know we are all deeply divided in this country, but it is important to think about how much common ground we share with people who think, live, and vote differently. All of us want security for ourselves and our families. All of us want decent housing, health care, good jobs, good schools, and secure retirements. We want fairness in everything, from economics to policing and criminal justice. We want a world at peace, and we don't want anyone to be hungry or homeless. Yes, we differ on how to get there, on what works and what doesn't work, but let us at least start at the same well. We are all thirsty and need water. So, as the story continues, the topic goes from literal water, that is, physical needs, to living water, spiritual needs. And again, this is also common ground. We all share the human condition, the sense of longing for meaning, for acceptance, for love, and for goodness, truth, and beauty. There is an ache in every heart. We are all aware of our mortality, and yet this world is not enough for us. Spiritual thirst is also common ground in spite of apparent diversity. When Jesus spoke to the woman about her husband, naming without shaming the center of her brokenness, her continually frustrated quest for love and security, she realized that he was what anthropologists call a spirit man, someone deeply in touch with God. She named him, from her cultural perspective, a prophet. So she brought up another area of their difference, religion. Samaritans had a sacred mountain that was not Jerusalem's Mount Zion and their own temple. Whose religion got it right? Which group believed the right things? Friends, Jesus' response is one of the most beautiful, liberating teachings he ever gave. He said, The hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It is not a question about whose religious traditions, whose mountain, whose temple gets it right. All of these traditions, the liturgies, these operating procedures are human-made. Do you think that they are at the heart of God's interest? Is your specific beliefs, in other words, the contents of your mind, God's greatest concern? Later, James will summarize this profound insight with these words. Religion 
that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. God is spirit. Spirit is not confined to temples and rituals. Spirit is everywhere and in everything. Spirit resists human definition. Yes, we have, as T.S. Eliot said, hints and guesses. And yes, we humans need metaphors like Heavenly Father or Mother to help us on a practical level. But we recognize that they are all analogies standing in for realities that humans cannot comprehend. Therefore, we have religious diversity. So Jesus did not ask this Samaritan woman to convert to Judaism, nor did he ask the Roman centurion nor the Canaanite woman to convert. He did, however, rejoice in the Jewish tax collector's conversion when at dinner at his home he committed himself to economic repentance and restoration. That kind of conversion is what Jesus meant when he said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He was calling for conversion of the heart among already Jewish people. Why is this teaching so hard to embrace? Why do we still put so much emphasis on correct belief when Jesus, whom we seek to follow, did not? Probably it is the result of our history. After Jesus' earthly life, people kept puzzling about how and in what way Jesus was related to God. Some said he was just a man, but full of God's Spirit. Some said he was not really human at all, but God merely seeming to be human. There were a variety of opinions in the early years. Eventually, these different views were represented by different communities, each with its own bishops. They called each other heretics. The disagreements about what to believe became sharp. In time, Constantine, the pagan Roman emperor, forced all the bishops to the little town of Nicaea and coerced them into coming up with a creed they could all agree on. That became the Nicene Creed. The year was 325. In other words, three centuries after Jesus. Stamping out religious diversity became one of the institutional church's primary goals. For many, it still is. That, to me, seems to be a long way from the goal Jesus had in mind as he sat by that well in Samaria that day. His concern was for that human being, that daughter of Eve, who was spiritually dying of thirst. His task was to help her understand that the living water of God's love was available for her, for her partner, and for her whole Samaritan village. That living water is still available for all of us. It is flowing all around us. We drink it when, like Jesus, we embrace diversity. When we cross the bridge to humans who are not like us and treat them with dignity and respect, the water flows. When we love the God that made them and give thanks for the rich, colorful diversity around us, the water flows. When we become aware that the diverse people who do not fit into the dominant narrative uh, who have been oppressed because they're different, and when we become allies and advocates for them, the living water flows. This is us being the church, as the banner says, by embracing diversity. Not by tolerating diversity, not by ignoring diversity, but by embracing diversity. Loving like God does every different creature God has made. That is our purpose. That is our joy.